According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Jeremiah this morning, aren't we? Jeremiah chapter 20. I brought the right notes with me. And if I didn't, we'll do chapter 20 anyway, because that's the notes I got. Jeremiah chapter 20. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. And to get back in fellowship before I preach, we're going to take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to bless our time together and to reward the truth of His Word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together this morning. I thank you for the prophet Jeremiah. I thank you for his faithfulness in uh, the face of every uh, affliction and all of the adversity. He stayed faithful to you, Father. And there were times he didn't want to. There were times he'd rather just quit the ministry. And yet, Father, uh, you wouldn't let him and he wouldn't let himself. And the nature of the ministry wouldn't let him. We're going to see some things today, I hope, Father, that are going to be an encouragement to each one of us when we have our own temptations to walk away and throw it in. Father, uh, you are faithful, and I thank you for that. So bless our time in your word today. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, 66 Sundays in the book of Isaiah, followed by 52 Sundays in the book of Jeremiah, brings us now, I haven't quite covered all that yet, but we are 20 Sundays now into the book, covering one chapter per week, and uh, we've got... Um, to deal with quite a bit here in this chapter. There's a lot, actually. Several themes, several topics come out that we could spend a month or longer just dwelling on some uh, pretty amazing uh, aspects of this. But we start with an arrest record, all right? Did you know Jeremiah has a rap sheet? Jeremiah's rap sheet begins right here. In fact, it's a lengthy rap sheet. He's going to spend several nights in jail, and uh, this is his first time, and it's only a single overnight. And uh, we see it described here, in response to the preaching. And when we ran out of time last week, we were at the end of chapter 19. You remember he had what I called a leadership retreat. He took the senior priests and the elders of the tribes and they went out to uh, Gehenna. They went out to the Valley of Hinnom and he smashed a pot in front of all of them. And that smashed pot was his demonstration of what was about to happen to Jerusalem. And then he left there and he went into the city and he preached. And it was interesting, I think anyway, that at the end of chapter 19, when he comes from Topheth and he goes into the court, the Lord didn't direct him to do that, at least not that the scripture records, but he did anyway of his own leading or of his own intention or what have you. He goes in there and he delivers that message to the temple itself. And uh, so we see in chapter 20 then when Pasher the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Pasher had Jeremiah, the prophet, beaten and put him in the stocks uh, that were at the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. So he gets put in the stocks, you know, just like you see in the movies, you know, the the wooden thing for your hands and your feet and your head and the, the wood comes down and and then you uh, you become the, the, the laughing stock. You become the object of scorn and ridicule. People can come by and throw fruit at you or they can do, do whatever else they want to do to you. You're kind of stuck in uh, in the stocks when you're there. It's only a single night, though. On the next day, verse 3, when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, 
Uh, look, look what he does. Does he back down? Does he apologize? Does he change his tune? No. He doubles down. He gets stronger in his rebuke. Uh, Jeremiah said to him, Pasher is not the name the Lord has called you, but rather Magor Masabib, that is uh, the terror on every side. He, he renames him with a name that communicates what uh, Pasher might expect in consequence for lifting his hand against the Lord's anointed. You realize if you put yourself on an adversarial footing against the Lord's anointed, then you are opening yourself up to that kind of discipline. And uh, this is what gets prophesied here. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm going to make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And while your eyes look on, they will fall by the sword and their enemies, uh, by the sword of their enemies. So I will give over all Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them away as exiles to Babylon and will slay them with the sword. So he doubles down on the message and he gives he gives them a new name. He doesn't change his tune. He gives uh, Pasher here a new name. By the way, this is the only chapter where we see this guy. Next week we'll have a different Pasher, a uh, different character, different uh, lineage as described in chapter 21. But we start here with the beating. He preaches the word of God and what does it get him? It gets him a beating. And we don't know how many lashes, probably 40, maybe 39, uh, but the, the Mosaic law prescribed 40 strokes. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 2 and 3. I'm not going to turn there this morning, but you can look that up. It prescribed 40 as the maximum number. It didn't have to go up that high, but the maximum number was 40. In the intertestamental period, they backed off a bit. In fact, it became uh, prescribed uh, by uh, Jewish tradition was to remove one and make 39 the maximum. And the reason being uh, is because it's possible, since we're human, we can, uh, we can make mistakes, we, we might miscount. And if we, if we lose count somewhere, I know, you know, anytime I'm beating somebody, I lose track of the... T, I'm teasing, okay? I shouldn't do that. Um, but you might miscount. And, and, and the danger is, what if you accidentally hit them a 41st time? How horrible would that be? And so the tradition then is to back off, only do 39 lashes, okay? And then if you have to do 39 lashes multiple times, you can do that because the Apostle Paul received the 39 lashes on five different occasions, we understand. So anyway, if you want to read more on that, you can. Uh, you can read from Josephus in his Antiquities. Um, also the reference to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 24. But this is the consequence. This is what he received. And we need to recognize this. Uh, if we think that uh, the ministry is, is a bed of roses or fun and games, we've got to think again. The reward that comes, comes when the chief shepherd appears, right? First Peter chapter 5, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And it just boggles my mind preachers that think that reward comes in time or that they're they're entitled to something or they've earned or deserved something let me tell you if you're the kind of preacher that's operating on the basis of what you've earned and deserved then you're not a grace preacher and grace does not deal with what we've earned and deserved all right we want to be men of grace as we minister the word of god and so these strokes and i i find it interesting how uh, these things come to be in fact, that Second Corinthians 11 passage, I think, ought to be just a course requirement for seminary, just to go through the uh, difficulties there and then how he just writes them all off and says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for the local churches. And uh, that's where the real ministry comes in, is in that spiritual uh, struggle. 
Second observation I want to make, I'm just going to steal from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. I thought that uh, Charles Dyer said it well. When Jeremiah was released from his chains the next day, he refused to change his message. Instead, he changed Pasher's name. All right, He's not changing his message. Instead, he changed Pasher's name. And I think that uh, was well said, and I appreciated that out of, the, out of the Bible Knowledge Commentary. But think about it. We had an example of that similar, uh, similar to that uh, last hour when we were in the Galatians series and we saw uh, the text in 1 Thessalonians. Paul mentioned the fact that after they were mistreated in Philippi, what happened? They had the boldness to speak the gospel even more clearly in, in Thessalonica. And so the boldness that comes after the beating, after the mistreatment, after uh, what happened there in Philippi, they didn't uh, soften their approach. They didn't get more circumspect in how they you know, uh, learn how to be more uh, diplomatic in their approach. No, they just doubled down and kept preaching the Word. And, and I like that. I view that as a pattern. I view that as normative for the church age. It's the example of our Savior. I believe Jesus was the same way when Jesus was preaching. He was preaching about uh, eating His flesh, and they were, they were kind of freaking out over it. You know, when you read there in John chapter 6, and how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And, and, and they start to kind of uh, push back on the message, uh, the message Jesus was given there. So what does he do? He says, all right, well, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. <laughs> he builds on it. He expands upon it. And he doesn't back down for a minute. He sticks with the truth. And I appreciate that. So between the examples of Jesus and Paul and Jeremiah, I think we have plenty of ground here uh, to stick to our guns, to speak the truth in love. We're not apologizing for anything. It's the truth of the Word of God. And uh, if you've got an issue with it, take it up with the Lord. Because I didn't write this, all right? God wrote this. We're preaching what God wrote. So search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Well, this is the beginning of uh, uh, Jeremiah the jailbird and his uh, history. He will have more. Uh, he's going to, in fact, spend the, the, the bulk of the final years in Jerusalem. He'll spend under guard uh, during the, the reign of, uh, of Zedekiah. And so we'll see more of that in some upcoming chapters. In fact, it's kind of good news when you get released out of one place in order to get put into a better jail, uh, when he gets brought out of the cistern and uh, gets put into the, the jail. It's kind of good to be home when you're back in your normal jail cell instead of down there in the, in the cistern that they, they put him in to die. All right. Um, then comes the complaint. And it's interesting, when we're under affliction, sometimes we say things we don't mean, sometimes we say things that are not true, and we know they're not true, but they seem true. And at the moment, it sure seems like God is a liar. At the moment, it sure seems like God has betrayed Jeremiah. That's what he says in verse 7. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. All right? You ever feel like God lied to you? That uh, he promised one thing and gave you something else? All right. It's not true. God's not a liar. But in our affliction, we may sometimes think that that's the case. We may sometimes think that, uh, you know, we're the bullseye and God has set us up as the target and he's, he's filling us with arrows, right? And then we get to write our own book of lamentations. <laughs> we get to write our own, uh, we get to imitate Jeremiah in, uh, in this capacity. So let's look at this. Following his day as a laughingstock, Jeremiah is going to compose a lament. And this lament, I think, is very instructive for each one of us. I think it shows humanity responding to the, to the circumstances for what they are until such time 
as we're able to stop, slow down, and begin to cycle the Scripture passages that will give us the stability that we need. But in the meantime, (laughs) who knows what's going to come out of our lips, right? As Job says, the words of a man in adversity belong to the wind. So don't hold it against them. Let the wind take it away and show some grace because, uh, you know, we're going to have our occasion too on some, uh, some day coming up. So, O Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. And this verse gives us an opportunity to even speak on aspects of laughing stock to speak to even develop a doctrine if we wanted to uh, i'm going to give you a few verses this morning but it really could be a fruitful con- uh, a comprehensive study on laughter the things god laughs at the things the world laughs at the things we should be laughing at but don't all right and uh, i think it becomes a, a useful study right there in any event i'll just give you a handful of verses this morning and we'll uh, take it from there For each time I speak, I cry aloud, I proclaim violence and destruction, because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. All day long. See, reproach and derision. And isn't that just upside down and backwards from what the Pharisees thought it was about? What Jesus even warned about with respect to the arrogance of the Pharisees, how they loved the greeting in the marketplaces. They loved the respectful greeting, being called rabbi, because everybody respects a communicator of the Word of God. Right? Not what this passage says. Not what other passages say. All right? In fact, uh, if you are truly speaking the truth and love, that you're going to make a lot of people mad. Depends on, you know, when we're defending God's wisdom and they're pursuing the wisdom from below. They're diametrically opposed. We want to be clear on that. But if I say, here's what happens when you think of quitting the ministry. If I say, I will not remember him or speak any more in his name. What happens if a prophet just says, that's it, I'm done, I'm retired, I'm out of the prophet business. Well, then he he suffers the consequences. It becomes an internal fire. In my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in all my bones. I am weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. I cannot endure it. And this, this is a concept that I puzzle over and I, I consider in a lot of different applications. And I wonder, how, uh, what kind of power was Jesus Christ holding in when he shut his mouth under the abuse he was under and when, when Pilate was demanding that he defend himself and he doesn't open his mouth? And he's He's faithful. He's, he's fulfilling the scriptures that he's the silent lamb that's going before his shearers. And he's, he's fulfilling Isaiah 53 and, and he's, he's the silent lamb. But you wonder the agony he was in at that moment, knowing that the cross was coming up. What might he have said? What kind of power could have slipped forth from the very God-man who created the universe <laughs> when he spoke and the universe sprang into existence? See the God-man who, when he comes back in Second Advent, is going to slay uh, all the forces of evil with the sword of his mouth. You know, imagine what he might have might have said. See, had he not been humble before his father and obedient to the father's will, there. Well, here's Jeremiah trying to hold it in, and and yet when he does, he realizes, man, it's just burning up. I got to get that out. If you don't expel that message, then the prophet himself could could burn up internally. And uh, and the issues here. Let me get down through verse 13 and then we'll 
make our points a study and start to, I think, find some some real treasures here. I mean, there's some there's some real meat in this in this chapter that that we can apply today, all day, every day. Uh, verse ten: For I have heard the whispering of many, starting with terror on every side, <laughs> starting with that that adversary that used to be known as Pasher. Okay denounce him yes let us denounce him all my trusted friends watching for my fall say perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him such was the opposition to truth that they just couldn't wait couldn't wait to find one false prophecy find one wrong message find one thing one grounds of accusation because a false prophet was supposed to be stoned Okay, and they could they could label him then as a false prophet, put him to death, and then ignore everything that he had to say, which is kind of the objective anyway. They want to ignore everything that he has to say. And in so many ways, of course, Jeremiah is a great type of Christ. Weren't they doing the same thing with Jesus? Just find one grounds of blasphemy, one grounds, just one charge that'll stick, one charge that we can get, and, and they just struggled. They kept finding witnesses who couldn't keep their story straight, and so it all fell apart in court. They were trying to find something for which they could execute Jesus for. And it's the same thing here. They're just looking for his fall. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. I love that. The dread champion. Sign me up. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. We've been studying this in Proverbs about memories that last forever and an eternal forgetfulness. That is, in the lake of fire, we don't even remember their names anymore because they're gone. Even their memory is forgotten. Yet, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, who see the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have set forth my cause. You see what he's doing? When he gets to his dread champion, when he, when he reminds himself that God tests the hearts and the minds, he's starting to cycle the doctrine that he knows. He's starting to recite the scriptures. He's starting to orient back to truth so that he can return to stability and be done with the, the, uh, the lamentation or the accusation that God is out to get him, that God uh, lied to him, that God deceived him. See, but it's just a process, and in this process, I find a lot of uh, 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 comfort. I find a lot of commonality. I find a lot of blessings to see as these things unfold in our experience. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for He has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of the evildoers. Isn't that great? And. Wouldn't it be even better if that's where the chapter ended? <laughs> All right. You know, again, just like life, you've got a great victory. You finally, I mean, you finally pulled it together and said, enough of that, enough of the temper tantrum. All right, Lord, you start applying the doctrine. You get your prayer life right. You're back on track again until the next verse. And then it's back to cursed be the day when I was born. <laughs> And I just, I, this is a fun chapter in so many ways. But we see the ups and the downs and the roller coaster. We see the, the, the realities of what happens when finite creatures are operating in the plan of God and the eternal God is unfolding things on a scale that we really don't do well to try to, to, try to grasp sometimes. All right? 
So we're going to address some of those issues as well. But let's talk about being laughing stocks. Um, we should start with that. In fact, I could give the whole hour on the laughing stock reality. Okay? It's our stock in trade. If you name the name of Christ, you should expect this. And in fact, if, if you're not experiencing much of this, um, come see me after class. We'll, try, I don't, we'll assign some to you maybe. No, no, I don't. We'll find, you know, there is a, a, an aspect of this. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this is a step short of persecution. This is, this is the, the, the adversary throws this out there uh, kind of as a warm-up. And he finds that the mocking ridicule works so well that in many cases he doesn't have to go to the step of persecution. Because tragically, too many Christians just bail on the, on the mocking stage. Too many Christians just abandon truth when they're being mocked and ridiculed for it. And they never even get to the persecution stage where they truly have to pay a price, a real price, for naming the name of Christ. And I think that should be clear too as we see a lot of these verses. Maybe I overdid it. Yeah, I, I put a lot of verses on this slide. But I think that, uh, that it, it's, a, it's an example that comes up again and again and again in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. And I think it's something that we ought to consider as it relates to the things God laughs at and the things man laughs at. And if you're being laughed at, why are you being laughed at? And does it hurt? Sure. But oh well. You know, um, what are we called to do anyway when it comes right down to it? So the laughing stock reality is stock in trade for God's service. And if you want to do a vocabulary study in this, by the way, as well, uh, it's all wrapped up in the name of Isaac. All right, Isaac means laughter. And it comes down to uh, the promise of God for a child. And, and Abraham laughed in faith and Sarah laughed uh, and denied it uh, because she didn't have the faith. And, and the, there was double laughter on the part of the father and the mother. And so they named Isaac laughter. And the vocabulary is going to be connected with, with, uh, uh, with Yishak, with uh, the name of Isaac here in the Old Testament. But starting in 2 Kings 2.23, 2 Kings 2.23, we'll get just a handful of these things. Some of you will uh, relate. Randy already knows where I'm going with this. This has been a Bible verse of yours for some time now? Okay. <laughs> okay. The prophet Elisha is being teased as a baldy. And uh, the youth hoodlums on the streets, as it were. And so here's uh, Elisha following Elijah. He gets a double portion of his spirit. And you would think, man, if you got a double portion of Elijah's spirit, Elijah was a pretty awesome prophet. Elisha's going to have to be even twice as good. And that, that certainly would entitle him to some respect and uh and so forth but it doesn't happen and as uh, he went up from there to bethel as he was going up by the way young lads came out from the city and uh, mocked him and said to him go up you bald head go up you bald head and when he looked behind him and saw them he cursed them in the name of the lord and two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number and he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. So here's a story, and here's a fun one to preach. But, you know, you start to, you start to wonder, did ancient Israel have the gang problem that, <laughs> that uh, we seem to have? And these youths, they get brave when they run in packs, and uh, so forth. 
And, you know, when parents can bring their child to the gates of the city and say, we're failing in, in training up this child and he's not responding to discipline and, and he's a rebel and the elders of the city support the parents in uh, the discipline upon that, uh, upon that hoodlum and even putting their own son to death if that's for the glory of Yahweh in a, in a covenant nation as the Old Testament describes, see. And uh, they, they took their role seriously in the, in the Old Testament on that. Or at least they were supposed to. I wonder how often they practiced it, actually, through the centuries of their rebellion. Anyway, but there's mocking and consequences. Does this seem harsh? They just called him a baldy. That's not, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Well, he's the anointed of the Lord, he's, and he's the, he has received the double portion of Elijah's spirit. And uh, to ridicule the servant of the Lord is a, is a serious deal. Remember, David would not lay his hand on Saul twice when he had the chance to do so. Because the king was the Lord's anointed. And he said, Saul is in the Lord's hands. I'm not going to touch him. I will not touch him. Okay? And demonstrated a tremendous amount of faith and a tremendous example that, uh, that makes me tremble to, to consider different aspects there. The book of Job, Job 12 and verse 4. Earliest book of the Bible. He has no written scripture to rely upon. And we see his testing and the circumstances here. Job responded, truly then you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. Yeah, he's, he's done with all the criticism he's getting here from his accusers. But I have intelligence as well as you. I'm not inferior to you, and who does not know such things as these? I am a joke to my friends, the one who called on God, and he answered him. The just and blameless man is a joke. Well, so be it. All right? If, uh, if I'm going to be mocked for trusting in the Lord, then oh well, make your jokes now because I'm not going to stop trusting the Lord. If, I'm, if you want to mock me for believing in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, knock yourself out. Mock me all day long because I'm not going to abandon anything that's in the Word of God. All right, and call me stupid and call me a fool and whatever in all of your science and all of your wisdom and you know you know for a fact that all this stuff is real. All right then, mock me now because I'm holding fast to what the Word of God says. So I am a joke to my friends, the one who called on God and he answered him. The just and the blameless man is a joke. Well, if that's what God calls me, then that's what I'll do. All right? And I think it is. I think it's common for all of us. I believe that the more and more that we become aliens and strangers, the more and more that we are uh, you know, pilgrims in this fallen world, it's going to get, the darker this world gets, the brighter our light shines, and the, the goofier they're going to think we are. Okay? Well, uh, there you go. What are you going to do? So, uh, joke to my friends, maybe that'll be his new name when he uh, receives his resurrection battlefield glory name. Uh, joke to my friends. How about our Lord on the cross, Psalm 22? Now David wrote this a thousand years before the cross. You ever wonder, what, what sparked David's imagination to write this? <laughs> you know, what vision did he see that caused him to write, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, to describe the, the, the narrative of the crucifixion a thousand years ahead of time? See, I believe God gave him a vision of the cross itself and that David saw the cross, that he saw the cross from the first person. He saw it from the perspective of Jesus hanging on the cross. And so he wrote, they pierced my hands and my feet. 
That literally never happened to David, the person, but in vision it could have happened. And if that's what he saw, that's what he wrote about. And so he also writes about the mocking and uh, so forth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. And Jesus quoted this. The gospel tells us that Jesus quoted this. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. See, you voice your complaint, but then you stop and you go back to doctrine. You go back to scripture. You go back to the faithfulness of God. That's what makes it a lament instead of a rebellion. (laughs) Okay? As you stop and you cycle the truth of the word of God. Yet you are holy. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and you were de- and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Here's their king, and they're mocking him. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with a lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. We get told the same thing. You know, if God loved you, he wouldn't put you through that. <laughs> Obviously, God doesn't love you. Look what, look what you're going through. Are you kidding? How long have you been out of work? Why doesn't God give you a job? Doesn't God love you? Or how long has this health test been lasting? See, your God's letting you down. If your God loved you, you wouldn't be on that cross. Come on down from there. And, uh, and I wonder, at what point did Satan realize? <laughs> I think at some point a light bulb came on. Because he spent so many years trying to get him on that cross. And then all of a sudden, something I think clicked in his diabolical mind. And he started to realize, wait a minute. This can't be good. <laughs> and then he starts to say, come down, come down, come down, get off of there. Right? But he didn't come down. He didn't come down. Thank God he didn't come down. All right. Psalm 69, verses 9 through 12. Another Davidic psalm. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Does that sound familiar? And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Why are they mocking you anyway? Well, why do they hate you? Because they hated God first. They hate the Lord first. They mock the Lord first. Those reproaches fall on you. So when I wept in my soul with fasting, it became a reproach. Oh, look at that weak sister, just weeping over nothing. And When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Oh, look at that holy ruler. Look at that loser. He's all religious and, and wearing sackcloth. What a, what a loser. What a, what a fanatic. What a religious freak. Come on, get real. Those who sit in the gate talk about me. So you become the water cooler discussion, right? In the workplace, they get together and you're the subject of their discussion. And I am the song of the drunkards. That's my favorite. I am the song of the drunkards. Man, you've really made it when you become the drunkards song at that point. When they're singing your name in their, in their drunken song. Lamentation 3.14 After Jeremiah comes Lamentations. Same author. More depressing book. Actually, 
The most, the most precious treasure in all the Bible, I think, comes in Lamentations. Morning by morning, great is thy faithfulness. New mercies I see. I mean, how does the most precious verse in all the Bible come in the most depressing book of all the Bible? I think that, that tells us something right there. This is what I was talking about earlier. Um, everything God's doing. I mean, God is against me. Do you feel like God hates you sometimes? You know, um, God, he's driven me and made me walk in darkness, not in light. That's verse 2. His hand is turned against me. That's verse 3. Um, he's using me for target practice. Is verse 12. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter my inward parts. And, you know, God doesn't miss. And he keeps shooting and shooting. And I'm just, I'm like a pincushion full of these arrows. I have become a laughing stock to all my people. Their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He's made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. And all these things. Okay? Yeah, there it is. Laughing stock. Those are the Old Testament examples. We get to the Gospel of Luke, and what do we see? We see the fulfillment here of everything that was shadows in the Old Testament. When David was writing, he was writing prophetically, and it was a foreshadowing. But the reality, the substance, belongs to Christ. And so in Luke 22 and Luke 23, we see the examples here. I won't spend a lot of time on this because it's not really pleasant to read, but um, I think it's useful. I think it's, uh, I recommend you read a gospel, a different gospel account every month. Um, just remind yourself of the price that was paid for, for eternal life. So in Luke twenty two sixty three and 64, um, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? You know, if you're a prophet, you should know which one of us hit you, even though we got you blindfolded right now. Which one of us hit you? And they're all just mocking him. You can't be a real prophet. If you were a real prophet, you'd have seen this coming, right? And, uh, man, and what's he doing? He's praying for him. He's interceding on their behalf. Father, hold this not against them. They know not what they do. And he's accepting the will of the Father in this. You get to chapter 23, and there's more of it. Verse 11. Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And he says, this is a king, all right, put a robe on him. And uh, just mock him. Send him back to Pilate. Same chapter, down to verses 35 and 36. They come to the place called the Skull. All right? Golgotha. In uh, Aramaic, it's Calvary in Latin. And that's the term that does better with the, the hymns. It's just, it rhymes better. It sounds better. We can sing about Calvary. and Anyway, it's Golgotha, the place of the skull. <clears throat> and he was, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. You know, he brought Lazarus out of the tomb. What's he going to do for his own sake? And uh, if he is the Christ, his chosen one, let him save himself. See, he's the one guy that didn't need to be saved, and he was up there saving the rest of us. And uh, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine. 
and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And so there they are, mocking. And this is where finally even one of the thieves had enough <laughs> and said, come on, that's, what are you guys doing? We're the guilty ones here. He's the innocent one. And uh, the great testimony here of, of the, uh, the man's salvation right there on the cross. All right, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 9 through 13. And Hebrews eleven thirty six. Here's our application. First Corinthians four. So come to expect this. This is normative for the church age. If not, ask yourself, what are you doing wrong? A little tongue in cheek here as he's rebuking the Corinthians. He says, You're already filled. You already become rich. You are become kings without us. Indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. You know, all these folks today and their prosperity theology and all there, they're practically in the kingdom already. Look at that. Wow, millennium's here. I missed that. And, and Paul just tongue-in-cheek says, you know, I kind of wish that was true. But the rest of us are in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict, and um, we, the, the cross has to precede the crown. has to. Or we're not imitators of Christ. I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all. It's the pinnacle, the church age, more than the prophets of the Old Testament, more than even Jesus in his incarnation, the mocking that we should expect as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. If you're not a spectacle, ask yourself, why not? And um, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. Again, it's that sarcasm directed towards Corinth. We are weak but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. That's the, the point right there. Take, take verse 13 right there. Put that on a business card. That's the church age. Just, just put your name on there. The scum of the world, the dregs of all things. Okay? And it you know, starts with the apostles, but I think it's normative for the church age. It applies by extension to the, the body of Christ. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Compatible with Hebrews 11.36. Oh, that's, again, back to the Old Testament. Obtain a better resurrection. Others experience mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonments. Stoned, sawn in two, tempted, all of this. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Okay? So we see the progression. We see the laughing stock. And the laughing stock may be sufficient. Laughing stock may get them out of the ministry. And if a laughing stock trips them up, great. If not, well, next step comes the persecution. Ramp it up even more. Ramp it up even more. Secondly, another principle I think out of Jeremiah 20. Jeremiah cannot not speak. Jeremiah cannot not speak. Neither can I. Neither can most communicators I know. If they're serious about their gift and their calling, and a door presents itself, boom, they're on it. Because that's what they're suited to do. That's what they're designed to do. 
They're created in Christ Jesus on the good works prepared beforehand that we, that we should walk in them. And the communicators of, in the New Testament that are called by the grace of God, how can they stay silent? As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 16 and 17. How can he stay silent? As uh, James and, and uh, John, or John and Peter say, when they were ordered to quit preaching Jesus in Acts chapter 4. Good luck with that. <laughs> All right. Tell me to quit preaching Jesus. Well, what, what have I been called to do? So Jeremiah cannot not speak. We already saw verses, uh, verse 9 here of chapter 20. It became inside of him a fire. If he just decided, no, I'm not going to deliver that message. You know, What was the, the nature of that ecstatic experience when the word of the Lord came to a prophet? You know, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus saith the Lord, go to the children of Israel and so forth. Well, what happens if he just doesn't try to, you know, just shuts it up and keeps it inside and, and fails to, to deliver that? Well, we're told right here, it starts to burn. It starts to burn. We even had an earlier example of this in Jeremiah chapter 5, where he thought about quitting. He thought about not speaking. Jeremiah chapter 5. In verse 14. Remember this? This was not that long ago, 15 weeks ago. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. Okay? It's the nature of the prophetic ministry. Words are fire. So when you don't deliver the words, what happens to the fire? <laughs> You try to keep it all inside. No, get it out there. Get it out there. Come back again in chapter 23 and verse 29, where not only is it fire, but it's also a hammer. It it, uh, doubles the metaphor from fire to hammer. 23-29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters the rock? Okay, we use the same idiom today in modern English. I mean, there were times Ralph was preaching and I felt pretty hammered, right? The Word of God is just hammering away. You, you get all kind of beaten up and thankful that, uh, that he sees fit to, to, to shape us in such a way. Other communicators experience similar circumstances. You have David trying to not prophesy in Psalm 39, verses 2 and 3. Uh, as I said, you got Peter and you got uh, John, the Apostle John in Acts chapter 4, and then you got the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 16 and 17. All right. What am I doing? I forgot. I got my new toy to play with. I should do this. Save ourselves some time. Keep forgetting. All right. Psalm 39. Uh, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. That's a plan anyway. All right. You ever want to put a muzzle on yourself? Okay. Does your mouth get you in trouble sometimes? Never mind. <laughs> Come see me after class. <clears throat> I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good. And my sorrow grew worse. See, sometimes if you think the answer is just to shut up and don't say anything, well, then guess what? You're not producing the edifying fruit either. Okay? Remember, the tongue is dangerous. It can bless, it can curse, 
We're accountable for how we use our mouth. And the answer isn't just to shut up and never say a thing, because then you're not communicating, then you're not speaking the truth, then you're not blessing. My heart was hot within me while I was musing. The fire burned. So then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. It goes on to talk about other aspects there. Anyway, that's uh, David's experience in Psalm 39. We talked about the apostles in Acts 5. Did we not? Yes, we did. In Acts 4, 18 through 20. They're under arrest. This is is, uh, the apostles before the Sanhedrin. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What happens in our nation if we lose our freedom? What what are pastors like me supposed to do? Or they tell you, well, you can still teach parts of your Bible, but there's certain sections we're now going to remove because they're hate speech. Certain chapters, certain topics... You can't speak on this particular thing and call it sin because we don't call it sin anymore. So they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Cannot not speak. By the way, this is how you can disobey but remain in subjection. Because he said, look, you be the judge. We're still under your sovereignty. We're still in subjection. We will face temporal consequences for the disobedience. We're still in subjection, but subjection is not mindless obedience. Because we're going to keep preaching Christ. And then uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen and 17. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Both are true. The voluntary aspect, the involuntary aspect. And so if if this is what you're called to do, if it's involuntary, if it's a stewardship, well then, you you, you could do it as a have to if you want to, but it's better off you should do it as a want to. Do it on a free will basis, serving the Lord because you want to, not because you have to. That's what makes it rewardable. But stop, try to stop. Woe be unto me if I preach not the gospel. The effects, the personal effects, the discipline that comes by defying the Lord's purpose. If I you know, quit the ministry or quit preaching or quit doing what I'm designed to do, then why am I still here? Why am I still here if I'm not doing the works that he's designed for me to do? The works that were created beforehand that I should walk in them. And, uh, and different things there. All right. Back to our text. With friends like these, who needs enemies, right? With friends like these, it's a good thing we have a dread champion on our side. Remember, these are his friends. These are his people that are listening to his preaching, waiting for him to slip up. And, and maybe, you know, attendance rises when the more people show up to, to try to catch you in, in, in a false prophecy or to try to catch you in something wrong. You wonder, wow, we got quite a few people here today. Interesting. 
Jeremiah would have to wonder, okay? People today might want to wonder if, if uh, there's groups going into churches and filming things and doing different things there. It makes you wonder. All right. Um, all my trusted friends. That's verse 10 of Jeremiah 20. For I have heard the whispering of many, starting with terror on every side. That's the renamed guy that put him in the stocks. Denounce him. Yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends watching for my fall say perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. What kind of friends are those? (laughs) All my trusted friends. Another aspect of this that makes Jeremiah a tremendous type of Christ. We have shadows that the substance belongs to Christ. We have... uh, aspects on this as well in job 19 19 psalm 41 9 psalm 55 verses 13 and 14 you know uh hosea i think is the prophet that said a a a man's enemies will be the members of his own household or is that micah in any event uh, having the lord for a dread champion provides great comfort put these verses down add these to your promises i mean if god is for us who can be against us (laughs) you know if, if, if the Lord God of the armies is your dread champion, then who cares what's on that other side? You know, you think about these movies and whatever, and you have a trial by combat to prove your innocence, and uh, you don't even have to do all the fighting yourself because you've got this dread champion that can stand in your place. And uh, who's going to fight this guy? So that's, that's what we've got going for us, is Jesus Christ. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of the armies, is Jeremiah's dread champion, and he wants, he doesn't care. So, uh, let's see. If we have time, we'll come back to this slide, because there is so much here. When you think of that betrayal in Psalm 41 and Psalm 55, David, when Ahithophel turned traitor, when Ahithophel counseled Absalom in the rebellion, it was just crushing to David. And it, it hurt the more because he was such a close friend. You know, it would have been better. It would have been easy. You know, when your enemies hate you, that's easy. You know, but when your friends are stabbing you in the back. And all David could think about is all the times he and Ahithophel had gone and worshipped together in the different feasts and the different um, holidays for Israel. And so it hurt. All right, we're going to let that go. We'll come back to it if we have time. God does test the righteous. He sees the mind and the heart. We want to be mindful of this. If uh, we think we can get away with some external uh, actions that are incompatible with the internal reality, think again. The uh, internal reality is what God judges. He looks upon the heart. And you can be a total phony and you can pull the wool over uh, you know, your husband's eyes or your wife's eyes or your pastor's eyes. Or you can, you can fool some of the people some of the time. But you're never going to fool God. God knows the reality and he's testing the, the heart motivation. And uh, the principles of this that uh, we have here in chapter 20, we previously taught in chapter 17. There's three weeks ago that came up, how he tests the hearts and the mind. Job seven, uh, Jeremiah 17.10, also Psalm 7.9, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Good luck hiding from God. Wherever you run, there he is. And even before the idea came that you were going to run, he knows your heart. He knows the thought before you ever had the thought. 
So these, uh, I want to look at these. These, these should be encouragement for us too, because I know right now we got so much testing going on, and there's the, the these, these are the passages that will encourage us in, in this. Jeremiah seventeen ten. I, the Lord, search the heart; I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And um, you might recall Satan tries to c- claim credit for some of the works that God's doing. And uh, we discussed that a few weeks ago in Jeremiah 17. Psalm 7, 9. Go back to this again. I can type faster than I can flip. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous, for the righteous God tries or tests the hearts and the minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a a God who has indignation every day. You know, if you think you've just had it up to here and you're just sick and tired of the things you're sick and tired of, what do you think God feels? All right? You know, he's got a more infinite capacity to be disgusted by the things that we're only finitely disgusted with. But he does test the hearts and the minds, so keep your heart where it needs to be. Don't, don't get so spoiled by the ugliness of what you're looking at that your heart becomes just as ugly as the things you're looking at. All right? That's Psalm 7. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Not only does God do this on a regular basis, we should invite Him to do this on a regular basis. If we're going to fulfill uh, what we saw last hour, if we're going to fulfill Galatians chapter 6, if we're going to examine our own work, this is the best way to do it. Give it to Him. Let Him examine it. Okay? You know, who's going to do a better job inspecting, you or, or the Lord? You know, I mean, there's some things you look at and, yeah, that's, that's, that's all right. That's clean enough. It's like when you look at something and your wife looks at something and you thought it was clean. And your wife looks at it and says, you thought that was clean? I thought it was clean. And it's the same thing with the Lord. He looks at that and says, that's not clean. Okay? And you're just lying to yourself if you're trying to convince me that's clean. The Lord knows that's not clean. And so if we can become like David and say, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my anxious thoughts. Because in the integrity of my heart, I believe I am, I am right in your eyes. But if I'm wrong, I want to know. I want your white glove treatment to show me what I need to remedy or what you need to remedy in me. See if there be in any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. All right, and finally... The last part of the chapter here, verses 14 and following. Although the previous lamentation ended positively, another deeper depression soon follows. Okay? And remember, we we wanted to end the chapter with verse 13. It would have been a nice chapter ending. Okay? I mean, we could have put, and he lived happily ever after on the closing credits, and we could have rolled the music, and I mean, it would have been nice to end the chapter with verse 13. But no, verse 14, Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. And so just pick that day, just rip it off the calendar. Absolutely rip it off the calendar. We're just going to go from the 13th to the 15th, and we're not going to have a 14th of January. It's just the birthday is gone. 
Okay? It, it's not to be observed. It's not to be celebrated. It's not to be, it's to be hated. It's to be a cursed day. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father saying, a baby boy has been born to you and made him very happy. These were in the old days when dad was out in the waiting room smoking with the cigars ready to hand out and didn't know, you know, nowadays, of course, the modern man is in there with the, in the birthing room. But let that guy be cursed who brings the news. And um, let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. Let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon because he did not kill me before birth so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. Boy, there's some imagery. Why did I ever come forth from the womb? You know, I mean, birth is hard enough, but if, that's the, if, it, if it's downhill from there, you know, if, if, that's, if that's the best day you've got going and every day after that has been worse than the one before, that's what he's saying here. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Well, this, by the way, is the second time he's done this. You might recall back in chapter 15, he also cursed the day of his birth. So the second, these are the only two times in the book that this happens. Chapter 15 in here. Just depressed about being born. I mean, this, this is, uh, you know, you forget about wanting to die. How about just wanting to retroactively undo your entire life? And one final phrase, we'll have to close here in prayer, but... Um, you ever think about what verse 17 is really saying here? Killing before birth is a remarkable argument against the view that life doesn't begin until birth. You know, if life doesn't begin until birth, how do you kill before birth? As it says, because he did not kill me before birth. And you know, I've said many times, I, I hold to the conception. Is the, mo- the moment of conception is the moment that the soul life begins. The traducian view of the soul is that living souls beget living souls. And so uh, when, when father and mother are procreating, they're procreating in a bodily function, in a soul function. They are procreating body, soul, and dead human spirit. Because that's what fallen humanity is in Adam, is body, soul, and dead human spirit. And because man became a living soul, living souls beget living souls. Cats beget cats, dogs beget dogs. Never once did a dog decide to give birth to a kitten, okay? An apple tree never just got on a whim and made a banana, okay? Everything replicates, everything procreates and produces after its kind. And living souls produce living souls. And so, and I realize that you've had different pastors and different teaching in the past, that, uh, that says that procreation is a bodily function only and then the soul is a creation of God at the moment of physical birth. And with uh, the doctrine of Nashama and, and aspects there, I have never held to that because everything replicates after its kind. And again, here's a good verse right here. If, uh, if life doesn't start until birth, then uh, it doesn't make any sense to be killed before, before life. Anyway, just a thought something to consider there. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the faithfulness of Jeremiah, and this is the least of it. Father, he's got some rougher days in front of him, and longer jail sentences, some uh, death sentences that are passed upon him, an execution warrant that gets signed and then revoked. Um, He's going to get thrown down into a cistern and left to die, and then brought back out of it and put back in jail again. 
He's got some uh, some rough days in front of him. And he's never allowed to marry. He'll never have children. He does not have a normal family life. But he stays faithful to you day by day and moment by moment. And I thank you for that example. And the uh, city that he loves, Father, he watches it fall down around him. And uh, And I pray that we would learn from these lessons. We have a nation that we love, Father, and we're watching its own, we're watching its fall, and we're wondering, uh, what are we going to be called to do in the days ahead? So, Father, equip us, prepare us, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. I do thank you, Father, that the, the, the fulfillment of your will is not up to us. The, uh, the victory is not ours. The victory is yours. And Father, it's just a a delight to watch how you work. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.